0: Welcome to the Saturday Podcast. My name is Brad Watson, and today we have a treat for you on this episode. Uh, Right now I've got Adam Breckenridge and Jared Pickney uh, with me. Say hi, guys. Hey, guys. Hi, guys. (laughs) That was well done. You guys have been watching National Lampoons. We actually Uh, had
1: a staff viewing of National Lampoons Lampoon's Lampoon's Christmas Vacation just last week. Do you
0: like cut out the parts that are that are not good, or do you guys just all watch them and see who's Yeah, man, we good watched, the, TV. We watched the TBS
1: version, of course. Oh, okay,
0: okay, that's good. I preached last Sunday and I like strongly recommended this movie, and then that night I watched it, and there's like a super like blatant sex scene in it. So
1: was it Varsity Blues?
0: No, it was not Varsity Blues. It was uh, Joye Noël. It's a French yeah, and German do. movie about World would never, You would War never,
1: War. You'd never make it in
0: Arkansas. I would never make it in Arkansas.
1: <laughs> uh, we would get fired for, for having someone watch that. Not because I had a sex scene, but just because it's... Because they couldn't pronounce it. They'd be so angry. I couldn't. I can't pronounce it. I don't even know well, what
0: you said. Well, that night, Mirella just was... My wife was just correcting me like, no, say it like this. Je, je. <laughs> and I was like, joy? Joy? But it's basically Merry Christmas in French. But Okay. Anyway, yeah, people check it out. Sorry about the sex scene. Back to today's episode, though. The three of us got to talk to Rich Plass. Yes. Uh, about the relational soul of that we all have, uh, who we are, how we're created to be. Yeah, it was a really good conversation. Excited to share it with everybody, especially since uh, as people who want to do missional communities, and I think we're, we kind of like collect yeah, all these people hungry for relationships. And like basically our entire thing is about relationships, mm-hmm. but we hardly ever sort of pause and say like,
1: man, what is a healthy <laughs> relationship? How do, yeah.
0: how do you do that? What are the things to, so
1: yeah. For those about to listen, there's so much information here. And I would just say like the first 30 minutes is really heady and lofty. I mean, awesome. Amazing. Excellent mm-hmm. stuff we begin to move even more towards some of the practical and you'll find little pieces of you know practical implications here and there. But what my encouragement would be to those listening, especially if you have a brain like mine and you want something that's more like cookies on the bottom shelf, like listen to this mm. prayerfully, take notes if you can, if you can't, that's fine. But then like begin to wrestle through this, like share this with your staff, share it with your other MC leaders and begin to process this like out loud, like take a couple of lunches or dinners or training sessions, whatever, you really begin to think through like, man, yeah, how are we doing in this area as far as relationships go? So I think a lot of times we just assume, like you just said, Brad, like these things naturally happen. But as Mm -hmm. Rich pointed out, like most of us because of wounds that we've experienced in our life are not great at them. Yeah, totally. I was really
0: encouraged to just, I mean, I wanted to do relationships Like in that conversation, I was like, man, I'm so excited to like relate to these people and to love the people in my missional community and to like engage them that way. It's like this odd thing when you talk about how something is hard and you talk about how it is in reality and not how it is in the ideal. It kind of woos us to actually like participate in it. So I was excited. Um, Anything you would add, Adam? I I did
2: have a thought that just nothing that's worth doing is easy. Mm-hmm. And uh, relationships would fall into that category. Um, extremely difficult, hard to do, but at the end of the day, that's really is what life is about, and it's the fundamental invitation that that Jesus extends to us is to enter into relationship with Him. My favorite phrase that Paul uses for the gospel is the message of reconciliation, where God is bringing us back into communion with Himself and and in peace with one another and communion with one another, and so. I just think that Rich's wisdom here is something that the church really needs. I uh, really need to hear this, and so very excited about this podcast.
0: Yeah, and so with that, I think we'll we'll let everybody listen and uh, jump jump into this conversation. Uh, yeah, as as Jared shared, it's pretty uh, heady and strong in the beginning, but yeah, take it slow, kind of devour it, consume it like a like a really good meal. And, uh, and then the last half gets more practical or, or vision-oriented around missional communities and leadership, which is also deeply, deeply challenging. So hope you guys enjoy this conversation. We'll talk again soon. Rich, thank you so much for, for joining us today.
3: You're welcome. My privilege. Glad to be with you all. Before
0: we jump right in, could you share with us just your story, you know, where you're from, how did you end up here as a servant to pastors, as a counselor to to so many people?
3: Sure. Reaching back, I grew up in upstate New York. My uh, folks were were believers. We were uh, faithful attenders to church, a little bit of Pentecostal tradition in the family, but uh, ended up as a child landing in the Reformed Church in America, eventually was ordained within that community of faith. Our family was kind of middle income, I would say. My dad was an orphan and kind of a blue-collar worker. My mom was from an immigrant first-generation family, and um, they taught us to be responsible and to work hard. Grew up with uh, uh, four sisters, uh, made a commitment to the Lord, I'm not sure it was about my four sisters, but made a commitment to the (laughs) Lord in my teen years. And uh, at that time, felt God was calling me into ministry. Uh, Most likely, as I see it now, as I close out on age 70, uh, the fruit of my mother's prayers, I suspect. Hmm. And uh, went on to uh, college. I wasn't a very good high school student. In fact, I was told I probably should not go to college, probably find a good uh, career as a, some sort of electrician or plumber, but I uh, ignored that, felt I was called to ministry, went to college in Horn City, Iowa, Northwestern College, made my way through there. Uh, sophomore year, read uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost hmm. of Discipleship, and that really changed the trajectory of my life in a significant way hmm. in terms of recognizing Bonhoeffer's favorite phrase, there's no cheap grace.
2: Mm-hmm. And
3: so uh became a, a diligent student then, and after college, went on to Gordon-Conwell and uh, graduated from there in 1975. Uh, married and uh, had four girls, and uh, in the course of 25 years of pastoral ministry, uh, ended up my final pastoral work was in planting a church in the south suburbs of Chicago. Wow. And uh, pastored that church for 25, or 19 years Really, through that experience, a, a difficult marriage unfortunately, that ended in divorce and the pain of uh, that journey, as long as uh, the pain of other pastors that I worked with, I felt God was calling me into a ministry of caring for the souls of leaders and probably unconsciously seeking to care for my own soul at mm. the time and so uh, I launched out and uh Went on to do PhD studies at Southern Seminary and Pastoral Counseling and at the same time founded Crosspoint Ministry to work on my own healing and to learn, I guess, better how to heal and help help others in the journey of healing hmm. and becoming whole persons in ministry. So that's sort of how we ended up. Those were the years of, started the journey in doctoral studies in 1995 in 96, and uh, finally crammed the four years of PhD work into six Mm. and got myself out. And we ended up in starting Crosspoint Ministry, working really at doing uh, intensives or interventions for couples that were really struggling and in trouble, Mm. and then um, found that the journey, we could do that forever and found that what we needed to do was to become more proactive in what was it that cultivated being a healthy person in ministry.
2: Hmm.
3: We wanted to explore those sorts of realities. And we ended up really focusing on contemplative disciplines and of solitude and silence and contemplative reading of Scripture and prayer as kind of essential spiritual disciplines in the fostering of a healthy soul in ministry. Um, That in contradistinction, I think, to the tendency in the evangelical community to be an activistic community and we're always busy building and achieving and accomplishing. And that needs to be balanced. Nothing wrong with ambition and accomplishing, but it needs to be balanced by the contemplative disciplines for the soul to stay in a healthy place. Um, and then through my doctoral studies really began this integrative work of trying to do a soul care that is, that's really Christ centered, uh, that is biblically based and is clinically informed.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
3: think those kind of three criterion guide how we go about doing our work in cross point and providing coaching and care. So now my wife, Sally, and I, along with several other colleagues, Jim Cofield, Joy Cofield, and other partners in our ministry, um, try to do our best at caring for the souls of leaders from that particular context of being a Christ-centered and biblically-based and clinically-informed ministry that really accentuates the significance of relationships, Uh, hence the book The Relational Soul." Mm -hmm. Um, And our conviction really emerges more out of our experience than out of, uh, well, it emerges probably out of experience and theological and clinical reflection. But over the years, we've been doing this now since 95 or 96, no one comes to us because they're short on biblical knowledge or theological Mm -hmm. knowledge. (laughs) No one does. And persons come fundamentally because of, Troubled souls. Uh, troubled souls individually or troubled relationally. Hmm. And as a result, we've attended to saying that ministry will rise and fall on the quality of our relationships. Hmm. And we also tend to say that the quality of our life is predicated on the quality of our relationships. So relationships
1: become key for us at, at cross
3: that's a long, long renditions
1: on how we got here. But go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry. No, that's fantastic. It's a great kind of segue into one of the questions I had for you, Rich. And it's around the idea of, you know, I've heard you say that we are designed for and defined by our relationships. Yes. And I was just wondering, you kind of alluded to that a little bit. But can mm-hmm. you flesh that out, uh, that, that idea for us just a little bit more? I think
3: there's two components to that, that question. One, a biblical theological component, and the other is a clinical component. If we look at it from a biblical theological component, it's, it's clear that the scripture is telling us that we're relational beings. After all, it says we're made in the image of God. Hmm. And our God is uni- a unique God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's a Trinitarian God. He dwells as one God in three distinct persons, in perfect love. So our God, by essence, is a relational God. And uh, I think the theologian Grenz makes that point in his book on the nature of social God and relational self or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the point here is that because we're made in the image of God, we're made male and female, which points to our relationality as well. But when we even move from image of God thinking to the nature of the New Testament, we find Jesus, Jesus saying things like, follow me, now, it seems to me that when Jesus is offering that personal invitation, he's inviting a relationship.
2: Uh-huh.
3: And, when he, and when he leaves and gives us the great commandment in Matthew 22, he doesn't say the great commandment is think about God and, th- and think about your neighbor as you think about yourself. He says, love God hmm. and love your, love your neighbor as yourself. So if we're going to engage in the world of loving, which is our primary ethic in our Christian life, then it seems to me that that's all relationally focused. It's an invitation to live relationally. Mm
1: -hmm. And, you
3: know, Paul, the eragopagus is is saying, in him and through him and for him, all things exist. So we we know this is a relational world. Colossians, Paul is making the point, Mm -hmm. in him, all things hold together. There isn't any life. There isn't any form of existence unless Jesus is relationally holding it together by his, hmm. under his lordship and by his divine power. So theologically, we're relational beings. Uh, that's our perspective from both creation and redemption. Hmm. And then if we look at it from a clinical perspective, it's quite fascinating. A uh, number of things. When a little infant shows up, their survival is dependent upon a relationship. And it's dependent upon making an an emotional connection. Hmm. Infants have two fundamental instincts. The instinct to find a set of eyes and the instinct to suck. Both of them are in service of connection. Hmm. Both of those instincts serve sustaining, obviously, physical health. But even in that act of sucking or physical health, There's this emotional connection that's being forged, and neurologically what's being mapped in the brain is a foundational attachment pattern, Hmm. a pattern of connecting that we'll use our whole life, and that pattern is completed, uh, some would argue, by 24 months. So we're designed both uh, by instinct and also by the nature of how the brain is seeking to be structured and ends up being structured for relational connection. One other, I find, very fascinating point is this notion, or this the fact, not notion, it's a fact, that we have mirror neurons. And mirror neurons help us to mimic and copy. And so uh, I have grandchildren, eight of them, and uh, they're wonderful people. And if, you, if you're around the three-year-olds, and the three-year-olds happen to be around the, the nine or 10-year-olds, The three-year-olds are going to be pretty much copying what the nine- and ten-year-olds are trying to do because of mirror neurons. Hmm. Mirror neurons are the way by which we copy others, but also in a more profound sense, it's the way we internalize the presence of others.
2: Hmm.
3: I'm fascinated by this statement in John Coe and Todd Hall's book, Psychology and the Spirit. They talk about an infant literally borrowing the brain of their adult caregivers. So the little infant starts crying. And how is the little infant soothed? Well, the little infant is soothed not by his or her own power or capacities, but rather in the early years by literally borrowing the brain of mom or dad who soothes and comforts them. And in that process, the infant internalizes the soothing presence and therefore establishes neurologically the capacity to self-regulate and to self-soothe. That's how profoundly relationally structured we are. And that continues throughout our lives. We continue to internalize the presence of other human beings as we make our journey. And no less so than in marriage. (laughs) We, Mm. We internalize the presence of our spouse. We experience them deep within ourselves, because we are fundamentally structured as relational beings from day one. And even probably the argument is, even in some case, third trimester in utero.
2: Hey, Rich, I've heard
3: you describe
2: everything you just said. I've heard you kind of sum up in this phrase that we are permeable
3: souls. Yes. How would you define a permeable soul? Well, a permeable soul is the soul that has the capacity to actually internalize the presence of others. Um, Robert Roberts makes this point in, in a book, Limiting the Psyche, in an article on parameters of a Christian psychology. And Roberts argues that one of the foundational dimensions of the human soul is that it's permeable. Now, from a theological perspective, that's how it's possible for the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, according to Corinthians. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within us because our souls are permeable. But also, you know, we had that adage when we were kids, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. (laughs) Well, we know that's a total lie because Mm -hmm. the, the verbal speech that we hear in our adult life, and particularly in our early years, Mm -hmm. literally gives definition to how we see ourselves and how we see others. And how can that be so powerful, those words? Because the soul is permeable, and it internalizes those words, and in a sense, begins to construct ways by which we see ourselves and see others in our world. Mm -hmm. So... God gives us this uh, wonderful gift of being permeable, which I suspect is uh, really related as well to our experience of relational intimacy. And mm-hmm. it leads to one of the deepest joys of our lives. Wouldn't you say that mm-hmm. we we can love and experience mm-hmm. the depth of being loved because our souls are permeable? Hmm. Able to be pierced, right? They can be pierced able to, penetrated. Able. You're yeah. able to be penetrated. That's right.
2: By oh. the words and the presence and the actions of others, which gives a whole new meaning to um, just the communion that we have with God, that he gives us his very presence, his very
3: spirit. We absorb his presence. Yes. Hmm. That's, I think that's what Jesus is after, frankly, when he's talking about eternal life. His life is now our life. Our life is hidden in Christ with God, says Paul in Colossians 3.3. 3 right? We're, we're in Christ, this phrase, we've been buried with Christ and raised with Christ. We've even ascended in Christ. How is that so? Because Christ is now in us. Hmm. He has penetrated our souls. His spirit dwells within us. The very, this, is not, this is not a metaphor or kind of a figure of speech that Paul and Jesus are talking about. This is our reality, right? Hmm. That we now live with God's presence. And in God's presence and what Christ's life is, that's what our life shall be.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So this begins to make a lot of sense then when you say, for example, in your book that, you know, we cannot reach our potential without healthy relationships. Obviously, talking about a healthy relationship with God, but also a healthy relationship with one another. And so a lot of that, what I would like to maybe hear you flesh out is how would you define a healthy relationship? Hmm.
3: Well, that's a good, that's a good question. <laughs> what, what, what makes for a mature person? You know, I, I think a healthy relationship is, is, is fundamentally, uh, let, let's kind of back it up a little bit. What constitutes, what leads to a healthy relationship? Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that what leads to healthy relationships, and it's the currency in all relationships, actually, is the notion of trust that when we are trusting of others, we can begin healthy relationships mm-hmm. and start. That's the platform for building healthy relationships. However, if we're mistrustful and there's a dimension in all of us because of a fallen world mm-hmm. that we're, we're mistrusting, but mistrusting, if it gets exaggerated because of most likely family of origin experiences, early childhood experiences, we become mistrustful, then we become a, a avoidant, uh, or we, we, we become very, very uh, hesitant and scared, if you will. And so we're not willing to be vulnerable. We're not willing to get close because we mistrust. And it's right. fascinating to me that, you know, Erickson made this point when he uh, explored the stages of development. He said the first stage is learning to trust. And uh, we either learn to trust or mistrust. And I think that's absolutely correct. What a little infant, what a little child is learning to do is they're learning to, learning to trust. They're learning to trust the people closest to them or, frankly, mistrust them. Hmm. And it fascinates me that when, when Jesus calls us into his kingdom, he says, we must become like little children. And foundationally, what he invites us to do is to trust. I was rereading in in John's gospel just today, in John 6, where the disciples are asking Jesus, well, well, Jesus, what's our work here? What's, What's the work of God for us? And Jesus says, your work is to believe in me. And so he invites us into this foundational journey of trusting, which is the currency of all healthy relationships, the capacity to trust. How do we get there? Well, we get there by being in relationships, fundamentally, I think, by healthy people. But we can make effort in certain things. We can make effort by being intentionally present. We can be effort by being open and receptive, which pushes us and moves us beyond our defensiveness. I think we can make progress in maturity by being curious, you know, by, by being open-minded and by by being willing to explore and seek to understand what someone else might be thinking or feeling, or even ask why they're thinking and feeling a certain way. So we want, we want to be curious, but I think too, as I reflecting on the question, I think an essential part of creating healthy relationships is not only learning to trust, not only learning to be self giving, but also learning to be trustworthy, right? If we're trustworthy, we invite friendships, we invite closeness, because people will migrate towards individuals that are reliable and dependable mm-hmm. and trustworthy. And so that leads us into then a consideration of the virtues of our faith, right? What, what's the purpose of the virtues of our faith? That we can just end up being good boys and girls Good men and women? or is the vir- are the virtues of the faith given in service of something? And I would propose that the virtues of our faith are really in service of connection and communion. They're in service of relational intimacy. We can trust a, an honest person. We can trust a gentle person. We feel, we feel we can be drawn close to the person who is kind and self-controlled but if the opposite of those are in play uh, vices are in play where people are are dishonest and impatient and they lack control um, they're harsh and judgmental and critical what happens the soul shrinks back and we withdraw because of those vices so to foster mature relationships to be a mature person is to engage in those virtues as we seek to grow in the journey of being trusting persons.
1: That's helpful. So I guess, would you say that one of the reasons we struggle so much to have healthy relationships is because of hurt, because of past wounds we've experienced, which then broke trust and made it very, very difficult for us then to engage in healthy, long-term relationship?
3: Yeah, I would, I would agree with that, Jared, I wholeheartedly. I think we underestimate the power of the early years of our lives. Hmm. And, I, and I get that call calls, calls us to press on, but he's, he's calling us to press on in faith. He's not calling us to ignore what we have lived or dismiss what we have lived. And the truth of the matter is, it's our childhood journey in which the primitive structuring of our brain is being mapped neurologically. Hmm. Our family of origin is designed to teach us how to be in relationship in healthy ways. Hmm. But because of a fallen world and because we're all sinners and we sin against each other, we get wounded and we wound others. And when we're deeply wounded by kind of chronic dysfunctional Hmm. behavior or sinful behavior in a family system, I I think here of some form of of abuse or verbal abuse or sexual abuse, physical abuse. Or as Vanderkilt points out in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, chronic neglect is as traumatic for a child as if they were physically abused. Mm. So there can be deep wounding that Hmm. happens. And so then we form ways or strategies of self-protection. And those yeah. self-protective strategies become our way of being me, hmm. and they may not be very helpful for relationships. Uh, frankly, in fact, they may undermine what we very, what the very thing we long for hmm. in uh, our attempt to live in harmony or in our marital relationship in an intimate and life-giving way. I'm mindful hmm. here of. Uh, Kurt Thompson, in his his book, Anatomy of the Soul, he Hmm. he makes the comment that 80% of the emotional conflict that arises in marriage is within the human soul prior to our even knowing our spouse. Mm -hmm. What gets surfaced in marriage isn't caused by the marriage. The marriage is only drawing it out of us Because marriage is the most intimate relationship we have, and therefore it accesses the earliest and most primitive, formative parts of who we are. Mm. So things show up in marriage that totally surprise us sometimes. You you folks that have been in ministry have listened to plenty of marriages and heard the comment, well, he, she... She was never like that before we were married. You know? <laughs> he was never like that before we were married. Well, what's happened? Well, the structures that defend us and protect us when we have to be close to someone come mm-hmm. online in marriage and they show up. Mm-hmm. And so a real part of our journey is the journey of healing our wounds. Yeah. And I think we need to make Theologically as leaders, we may need to make two big distinctions. one is we need to repent of our sins that's true we need to be we're culpable beings mm. responsible persons and we, we when we do that which is wrong, we need to turn from it we need to seek forgiveness we need to confess to our Lord but at the same time, we don't repent of wounds we heal wounds. Mm. And so when Jesus came to save us, he came to both forgive us and heal us. Mm -hmm. The journey of becoming whole people in Mm -hmm. Christ.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's so good. And I think that even what you're describing with marriage kind of relates to Christian fellowship or Christian community. You know, there's a lot of stuff that comes out when people are in community or in these relationships within the church. Uh, A lot of times people say, well, church is super messy. It's like, and I, I'm not like this outside of the church, but in these, these relationships, this is where this mess comes out, this sure. relational dysfunction, you know.
3: Well, what, what should we expect? First of all, right. God, God loving us, God's taking that a whole lot more serious than we are many times. Mm-hmm. And so he's really interested in healing us. Mm-hmm. So he's going, to, he's going to surface these profound parts of who we are, these early primitive parts of who we are. He's going mm-hmm. to bring them to the fore. And how does he bring them to the fore? Well, he doesn't necessarily do it by us reading a book in our quiet study or in our, in our family room or uh, front room uh, next to a fireplace. He does it in the matrix of relationship, right? right. It's in the context of relationship that we begin <laughs> to see our impatience or we begin to see our critical spirit or we begin to see right. our need to have power or to manipulate. Uh, we see that when we start paying attention relationally. And, of course, the whole that's exactly what the Holy Spirit's going to do. He's going to draw to our minds how we're doing relationally because he's invited us fundamentally to be people who love one another, right. which is a relational journey.
0: Yeah, you've done some of your interventions, and you've cared for the souls of many leaders of the Soma family of churches, and we're all like building churches around missional communities, so you've probably, you know— heard this reality a lot too i think you know what you described is some of the beauty of how we're structuring our churches around these communities Yes, uh, because it comes out and it kind of removes some of what we've settled for in american christianity of let's not do the relationship stuff let's just do a bible study and then that can separate us between that we, we don't have to step into that matrix as you said But there's a lot of challenges with that, too.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That kind of approach to the soul makes us less present to ourselves and to others. Because when we just engage in thinking and studying, if you will, we engage left brain. Really, God wants us to be integrated persons and also rely on our right Mm -hmm. brain, which is our ability to sense and to be present to and to see holistically what's happening relationally. So, yeah, those relationships in which we're telling our story to one another is moving us out of that heavy left brain stuff into a more holistic way of functioning neurologically and also psychologically.
0: Yeah, which is exciting. Yes. Uh, (laughs) But it's also, you know, one of the things my wife and I have experienced a lot is that it's not just that there's difficult people, as in like they have difficult circumstances, like here's a single mother that doesn't have like the finances. And so that's that's a, yeah. a challenge. Or we have a refugee family that we're trying to uh, care for and they don't speak English, and that's a challenge. Most of the, the mess is actually relationally immature people. In fact, something we observe, my wife and I, is that leading in a sort of an attractional church as you were just, just describing of like, oh, let's just focus on the knowledge. Let's turn off the relational piece. You know, what people consume is if you're a leader, they consume your talents or your skills. Like, yeah, you know, I like Brad. He's good at preaching and talking. And he, you know, I, I, I just want that. I just want his personality. Yeah. But then when you really lead a decentralized kind of community-based church, people aren't consuming your skills or talents. They're, comp- they're consuming you. Uh, even what you talked about earlier, if if you're re- a healthy person, you know people are going to be attracted to having relationship with you. Yes. And so I wonder, like, what wisdom do you have for that, or even some of the other challenges you've probably seen as yeah. you've worked with us?
3: Yeah. Well, one of the things, one of the distinctions, or one of the ways of approaching relationship, we keep in mind a number of things. One of them that I tend want to keep in mind is I tend to think in terms of capacity. What is this person's capacity? And Mm. their story will tell me a lot of that. Mm. Because one of the things when we start talking about relationships and start talking about the New Testament and start understanding of community is that I think we can end up with idealized notions I believe a lot of what Paul was pointing to was kind of an eschatological reality of community. This is the ideal that God has called us to.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
3: he, he's called us to, to this reality. But you only have to read first and second Corinthians to get a real <laughs> dose of moving beyond idealism to reality. Yeah. You know, that that's more the tenor and the texture of the church. So so we show up with persons that have. Limited capacities in many ways uh, because of what they What they've lived in childhood in terms of their ability to do relationships well and they're deeply injured And uh, many times certain aspects psychological Mm -hmm. structures haven't been developed well They may not for instance be able to manage Their emotional outbursts well or manage their impulses well they may have very poor boundaries Uh, You've invited me into a relationship of loving. And yeah, they don't think in terms of giving, they think in terms of their needing to receive being loved. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge when we're talking about community is we really need to make sure we're growing and becoming healthy human beings. Uh, And again, there's where I want to challenge the leaders to be self-aware, to understand Mm -hmm. their own story to understand their own limitations, to be realistic about their limitations. Because we're not Jesus, we're not God, we're human beings and Mm. we have real limits. And frankly, Mm. we can only hold so much emotionally. We need to be able to stay differentiated emotionally in relationship with others. We need Mm. to remember that when we're in community, that each person has to be responsible for their own maturation and growth. Uh uh We can't take that on and make their growth my fundamental responsibility. Hmm, I'm here to care, to support, to nurture, to guide, but I'm not not able to do their work for them. And some people will be willing to do work. Other people, maybe, maybe for a time, but maybe not that seriously. There's all sorts of varieties that we have. But I think we need to be realistic about what we're expecting when we talk about community. And we need to be doing our own work. We need to make sure we're healthy relationally. And we need to make sure we're maintaining boundaries and staying emotionally differentiated, encouraging people to be responsible
1: for their own souls. Yeah. Yeah, that's money. And for those listening, I hope, I mean, take note of that and play that again. I mean, yeah, take responsibility for your own relational, emotional, spiritual health, which is all tied in together first and foremost. But then also I think there are a lot of people that are listening to this rich and, and at least from what I hear, the guys I'm coaching is they spend so much energy trying to focus on the people on the fringes who honestly Hmm. just are, are are basically requiring for them to force feed And expecting like, you know, like, yeah, I I need you to force me the information and make me grow, you know. And as a result, they're worn out. And what I hear you saying is what I think so many of us need to hear over and over is if someone's not willing to take responsibility for their own growth, like you're going to kill yourself by trying to mature them.
3: I think if we're not careful, we can end up with a real cynical Mm -hmm. and even negative attitude towards persons. And that's why I've landed on, you know, this notion of think in terms of a person's capacity. What's their capacity for relational connection? What's their capacity to be intentional? S- some persons are so deeply wounded, it's more difficult for them. They struggle with real weaknesses in terms of relational connectedness. Mm-hmm. And if we can be re- realistic about that, I think we are more inclined to stay in a gracious posture towards them and also a truth telling posture towards mm-hmm. them without becoming either cynical or angry or frustrated or disgusted or even avoidant which of course Jesus Jesus engaged these folks um, but he engaged them by calling as we need to call them follow Jesus and mm-hmm. and, and not take too much responsibility for others uh, others' journey of faith. People have to own that responsibility. Yeah, and some will go to a far country. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, they, they go to a far country, and and unfortunately, some have the chronic habit of going to far countries. Yeah, there again, we leave that to the we leave that to the Lord. The, the fruit is the Lord's work, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's such a yeah, such a good thing for so many people to hear. I can. I can remember just even the moment and that this, the living room that I was in and the, the plates that I was holding as cleaning up after a community gathering in our house and yes. just thinking, I cannot be these people's waiter anymore. Yes. Like, I, I just can't do another step. I, I can't give this person, you know, like grief, but not too strong. I can't give that person, you know, the laughter, but not too, you know, over the top. And I, I was just trying to like build for everyone what they were as if I was just working at in and out Burger or something. For me, is a very pivotal moment of even, even pressing into a lot of the reality that you've been talking about is.
3: Well, I, I think I think what you're. You're, you're, you're pointing out, when we set up community, what we need to do is be clear about what's the nature of our, my boundaries here.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: The nature of my boundaries is, no, we're having a community group. This isn't a restaurant with yeah. me and my wife or husband <laughs> as the waiter and waitress. Mm-hmm. So we say right up front, you know, we we all going to pitch in. We're all going to pick up together. We're all going to straighten up together. That's kind of how we do it here. We kind of have to map out those those rules or right. those boundaries, uh, so uh, people people understand what what it is to do healthy community. Yeah, absolutely. Because we're we're trying to cultivate by calling people into community. We're trying to cultivate persons who are self giving. Yeah, and we need to put that out. That's what Christian love is. Christian love, that we think of this as Advent. God's coming to us. God giving of himself for us, right? And Christian love is this journey of self-giving, uh, of this pouring out for others. So I think we need to be clear on that, that what defines our Christian community mm-hmm. is not self-absorption, but right. self-giving. That doesn't mean we ignore ourselves, we pay attention to ourselves, but also we're committed to be generous people in giving ourselves to others.
0: Right and that and that expectation of mutual responsibility i think is what you're talking about there is because i think far too often leaders in that setting take the posture of like well yes i will self-kit like i will give of myself i will pour myself out but these people they're not ready for that yet so they don't have to clean up afterwards you know <laughs> like they don't they don't they don't need to meet the family standards so to speak of like or the family practices even so I'll do it for them. I'll even care for their soul on their behalf and do the praying and do the communing and the silence and the solitude for them instead right. of them doing it themselves.
3: Yeah. I, I think one of the things we talk about frequently with leaders, again, in terms of staying healthy is in terms of availability, mm. um, and Jesus wasn't available 24-7. I mean, it's it's clear from the Gospels, you know, after he fed the multitude, he, he went off to be alone. Mm-hmm. Um, he wasn't available to the disciples all the time. They wondered where he was on occasion because he was off alone mm-hmm. by himself, sometimes with only several of the disciples. So we know that Jesus was measured in his availability, if you will. and. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes we need to be mindful of that, too, that a leader of a community group, a pastor, it can't be available 24-7. If he is, he's yeah. going to end up with real relational difficulties, both within himself and in his primary relationships, hmm. because it's not possible to have healthy relationships if we are always available to others outside of our primary relationships.
0: Right. Yeah, and I think Jared probably has a good question for this, but I think that, that kind of segues into when you say it like that, it's clearly unhealthy, yet there's something within leaders
1: that drive them to do that. Yeah, yeah. we've talked to Brad and I were talking about this even, Rich, before we hopped on the call with you, but it, we know you've done a lot of work with just on narcissism and pastoral yeah. ministry. And yeah. so I'm just interested from your perspective, how does church leadership attract and fuel narcissism? And so yeah. what are you say in just kind of big picture wise? Well, if we look at a
3: big picture, what, what's a narcissist interested in? And typically, well, we know a narcissist is interested in themselves. <laughs> and, and we know that clergy typically score higher on narcissistic scales than the the cultural mean the average person in the culture but narcissists are interested in power position and fame hmm. you know they're, they're hmm. interested in those they're, they're interested in being the center of attention the, the, there's this old adage you know what's a nar- who's a narcissist and the adage is that the narcissist is the person who's the corpse at every funeral and
1: the bride at every wedding. <laughs> <laughs> there's not any pastors that struggle with that, are there, Rich?
3: They, they are the center of attention. So you see pastoral ministry and even community group, or community group leadership makes, can make you the center of attention. And narcissists are drawn to that. And they're drawn to kind of that position of power and control and uh, they'd like to receive the praise and the and if not praise the attention that they receive when they stand up in front of other people and the kind of uh, social notoriety that persons will have when they're in a leadership position as a pastor or community group leader in a in a church community in a neighborhood in a in a town village city narcissists are are attracted to those places where they can be recognized affirmed acknowledged and where they can exercise control and where they can exercise power and they can receive the adulation of others if they're savvy they can be very relationally manipulative to engender those sorts of responses of of Adulation and praise and thanksgiving. They're kind of, they're kind of adored. And that, that fits the need of the narcissist to have their egos kind of inflated. Uh, it fills the need for a sense of grandiosity. The challenge is that the typical narcissist is not very empathic because they are not very empathic. Their relational manipulation usually exposes them. Now, it may take a decade or so, Hmm. but eventually it will expose them. And when it exposes them, it usually is not pretty, usually the beginning of the end of that community. Hmm. Because the narcissist, you see, has built a community around him or herself, and they've been overly dependent on that community. Hmm. And so if the community ends up feeling uh, manipulated and used, which they eventually will, then the narcissist in the exercise of their power will tend to get angry and rage at Mm. various dimensions of the community.
1: And that really signals the beginning of the end. Mm. And there's so much good information that you've given us, Rich. I want to be sensitive to your time and I'd like to just maybe a couple more questions that uh, for you to answer and just to get super practical when it comes to, to leadership, you know, there's, a lot of the people that are listening to this, the reason they're listening is because they want to devote their lives to making disciples. And so they feel very strongly about engaging in the mission of God. And they believe that relationships is a key part of that. And so it's one of the reasons we wanted to have you on. And, and I'm just interested um, from your perspective, what's one thing you'd want to say to the leaders who are listening to this, who long to make disciples in a North American context?
3: Yeah. Good. Really, really good question. I'm really convinced that the evangelical witness of the church in the 21st century in the Western world will be a relational witness Mm. because there are going to be persons, many, many persons who have no idea on how to do relationships so that their lives feel in some measure fulfilled and they have a sense that they're thriving. Mm -hmm. And while the gospel is, shall ever be true. And the truth of the gospel shall ever frame and shape Christendom, Orthodox Christianity. The truth of the matter is, our apologetic is not going to be the compelling expression of ideas as much as it's going to be the quality of our relationships as the people of God. That's yeah, so exactly what Jesus was getting after when he said, You'll know my disciples by their love for one another. Yes. He did not say, you will know my disciples by their theological acumen. <laughs> he didn't say that. And so he pushes us to this relational witness, if you will, as a community of faith. And so to do that well, I think a leader... Again, I'm, I'm, we're all for, I love reading theology, I love God's word, I want to grow in it, I want to immerse myself in it, I want to hear the voice of God on a regular basis, I want to submit myself to my pastor's preaching of God's word, I want all of that for my soul and for my wife and for my family, I want all of that. But I also have to have the realization, I must really come to know myself so that I am an integrated and whole person, Hmm. that I'm not dismissing parts of my life where I've been wounded and injured, where I'm not neglecting pieces of me and pretending I can ignore them, that I can dabble over here or dabble over there in untoward literature or a material that is, I know isn't helpful, but rather God's calling me into kind of a a way of being that's fully integrated. Uh, I, I think holiness is a, is a life, not just of moral goodness, but it's also a psychological integration mm. where I'm not living from parts, but I'm living holistically. And all of me comes before the Lord. Mm. I, I think for leaders to, to be that kind of disciple maker, if you will, to be that kind of man or woman who leads out with the presence of Christ in their lives. It's really dependent upon the health of who they are, both in terms of their spiritual lives, but also in terms of their own relationship with themselves and the relationship with others, Hmm. that they are growing in who they are and how they understand themselves, but also maturing in the depth of their relationships with their spouse, with their children, grandchildren, friends, and even parishioners, to the extent that they they have they're capable of doing it, in light of the the limits that ministry places
1: on us. That's fantastic. I guess in a lot of that, in closing, what would you say, just off the top of your head, are there are there some practical things that your listeners can begin to do to try to cultivate those healthy relationships, starting yeah, good. today? Yeah.
3: Yeah, one of the things you absolutely must do is you must have somebody in your life who knows you other than your spouse. Mm-hmm. Or, or you, you must have somebody who you're talking to about your journey that you're sharing your heart with. And that's not, it's a journey of being known and knowing. Uh, and there's this wonderful section in Anatomy of the Soul as, it begins, as Thompson begins his book it's this journey, he says, to be healthy is this journey of being known. We all learn, we all long to be known. And that's the nature of our relationship with God. We become known to God. And God becomes known to us. And in that, we can become healthy people. And so persons need a friend where they can be known to one another. And it's not just Accountability but it's really a learning to do intimacy and connection with another human being by sharing our sharing our hearts and i think to the practice of these contemplative disciplines we mm-hmm. if we're going to be engaged in the world we must practice what jesus practiced and that's pulling apart from the world and centering ourselves in the word of god in prayer and we need to be able to tolerate and engage times of solitude and silence
1: where we can be still and know that God is God. It's excellent. Very good. Well, Rich, for those listening, if they want to know more about your ministry, is there somewhere they can go?
3: Yeah, they can uh, go to crosspointministry.com and they can learn about our soul care institute that we're launching for the third time. We had, have had two cohorts. It's two year long journey, three times a year. It's a soul care Institute. And we dig into these kinds of issues from a relational paradigm in depth. We also have deeper journey, which is a two year experience. We meet once a quarter and that's over a Friday evening, Saturday to afternoon. And those, those dates are all on the, uh, all on our website. And of course we do coaching and uh, persons can, reach out through info at crosspointministry.com. If they um, want to email us with a need for coaching or care, um, that's why Crosspoint Ministry is here.
1: Fantastic. yeah.
3: Yeah. Good. Good. Guys,
1: anything y'all want to add? And
3: pick up a book, pick up a copy of Relational Soul. That's what I was going to add.
0: There's a group of friends here in Los Angeles, uh, four guys, and we are reading through that book together right now. Thank you. Uh, reading it in half chapters because yeah. we read one chapter and everyone said, Can we just read four pages
1: next time?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we need to read, it, read four pages and then stop and just say, Oh, what's
1: all happening? So. That's the way this podcast is going to be. I was thinking we need to break this up into four episodes and we share this. Yeah. So good.
2: No, Rich, I, I'm really thankful for you, man. <laughs> just as someone
3: who, I mean, I was thankfully, uh, our church allowed me to go through your Soul Institute. So I would. Yeah. Been- yeah. If you want to know about the nature of soul care Institute call Adam Breckenridge. <laughs> That's right. Adam. Adam Wentz hey, his through. cell
1: phone number is. <laughs> <laughs> Rich. Thanks for your time, man. We really appreciate you. You're welcome. It's my privilege guys. God bless you all. Yeah. God bless you. you brother.
0: Today's podcast was edited by Ben Fort and our theme music is written and performed by the band Mopac. Saturate's hope is to see one missional community for every 1,000 people in every city as we see the glory of God fill every person, every place, and every church. We participate in this vision by curating resources, training, coaching, consulting, and many more ways. Find out
3: more at saturatetheworld.com.